in John chapter 1. Hopefully you're there by now. John chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 19 so we can kind of get the context of what we were seeing last week and then what we're going to see this week. So in verse 19 it says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And then they said to him, Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now those who were sent from, uh, from me, or excuse me, those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. We're going to pray, and then we're going to finish our message that we started last week, a man of understanding. A man of understanding. Dearly Father, thank you, Lord, again for this time. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for it appl being applied to our lives, that all who confess that they are a sinner and ask for forgiveness through the blood of Christ shall have that blood applied to their account. That righteousness, that just person who died for the unjust. We, we can have that eternal life. And Father, I do pray that you would continue to help us to grow in that a life that we have now started. Father, help us to continue to grow closer to you that as a baby would grow and as a baby would continue to get stronger and get healthier, that we too as Christians uh, who have been born again, that we too would grow and get healthier and get stronger in our own faith. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do with and through us. We thank you for what you have done. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this is John giving a testimony or a witness to what he saw and what he knew, what God had told him was going to happen. He was the forerunner we talked about last week. 
Uh, we talked about how John the Baptist understood who he was. He understood in comparison to God that he was not the Christ. He understood that in comparison to uh, what was going on in Scripture and what was the plan that God was unfolding here, that he was not Elijah. He was not the prophet. And he was a humble man. You know, it would be very easy for somebody to say, you know what, I have all these people following, I have all these people trying to figure out uh, what is going on uh, here and trying to decide if I'm the one who is coming, uh, that was foretold. But he was a humble man, and rather than saying, I'm going to step into that place and have them follow me, he says later on in uh, John, the book of John, he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. And I think we sent that out as a, uh, a memory, not a memory verse, but a reading verse this week or last week. And he's saying, I am not the one. I am just a voice. And if we can understand one thing from John the Baptist, it should be that he was a humble man that understood that he was a voice for God, but not God himself. He was not that sent one. It says that these men who came, they were sent from the priests and the Levites. Just as a, a reminder, the priests were those who uh, enacted the sacrifices and did the ceremonial uh, sacrifices in the temple. They were from the family of Aaron. You could not be a priest unless you were from that family. Uh, we see that the Levites were from the family of Levi. They were not from the family of Aaron, but they were from the family of Levi, part of the 12 tribes of Israel that we see in the Old Testament. But they were the people who kind of made sure that things ran smoothly. They kind of made sure things were clean and things were ready and things were prepared for the priests to do the sacrifices in the temple. And we're going to read a little bit more about those sacrifices as we get into understanding who Jesus is as we see who John the Baptist understood Jesus to be. But he was a voice. He was a one that was prophesied from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, that he was going to come and that he was going to be uh, the forerunner, as it says here in verse 23 of John chapter 1. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He is making the path uh, open for people to be able to see Jesus clearly. His baptism was of water. It was one of repentance. It was one that uh, the Pharisees came, and uh, he, we, we, we could see in other of the Gospels that he talked with them and asked them, why do you come to be baptized? Because he could understand uh, by their actions and by their attitudes and by what they said, John the Baptist could understand uh, that they were not coming to be baptized to repent of their sin. They were coming to kind of see what was going on, to make sure that there wasn't some revolt happening, to make sure that there wasn't some uh, group of people getting together to try and overthrow them and to rebel against them. Uh, there was these groups of people called the Zealots, uh, and they were a very malicious group in the aspect that they were willing to take up arms and to kill people uh, to further what they believed. And so they were not uh, people who were acting in compassion. Uh, and the Jewish people, the Pharisees, were uh, ultimately, they were concerned about the power that they had over the Jewish people. That is why they were so concerned. You know, it sounds like they were looking for the Messiah when it says, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? 
Are you the prophet? But in reality, when you see what happens throughout the rest of the Gospels, you understand that they weren't looking for the Christ. In reality, they were looking to make sure that nobody took a hold of their power that they had over the Jewish people. Which is one thing that we see when we look at the events when Jesus turned over the tables in the temple. You know, we can uh, talk about, oh, Jesus shouldn't have done that, but what was his point? His point was that they weren't doing things the way that God had set them up to be done. And we can get into that another portion when we get into that. But in chapter 2 is where he actually, uh, for one of the times, cleanses the temple. But we see here that John the Baptist understood who he was. And we, too, need to understand and remember who we are. Sometimes, uh, it's usually with Christians who have been saved for a long time, sometimes they can forget where they came from. Sometimes they can forget about how far from God they were, especially if maybe they uh, lived a quote-unquote good life. The Bible says no man is good but God. And so really none of us have lived a good life in comparison to God who has lived a perfect life, who is perfect, without sin. And yet sometimes they can forget where they came from. May we never forget what God saved us from, and where we were before he saved our souls. Understand who we are. We are simply a voice, and keep that humble spirit that God would not resist us as he resists the proud, but that he would give grace to us. As the Bible says, he gives grace to the humble, and yet he resists the proud. So secondly, I want us to see John the Baptist understood who Jesus was, and who Jesus is. So let's start in verse 29 of uh, John chapter 1. We're going to go to a few other verses, and we're going to turn there in a few minutes. But I want us to read these and think about this here for a second. It says, the next day, so they had these things happen. John was talking to the Pharisee, uh, the people who were sent by the Pharisees. They had a night. They slept. The next day, John saw Jesus coming. The next day, John's out doing what he normally does, and he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, look. That's what that word behold means. It means look over there. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who has come from God, the one who has been talked about from the Old Testament until now, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. As in John chapter 5, 8, and 10, uh, Jesus claims to be God, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's talking about being the great I am. And here John is reminding them uh, before Jesus even said that uh, in the scriptures. He's saying, this is the man of whom I told you about. After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's eternal. I did not know him. But that he should be revealed to Israel. 
Therefore I came baptizing with water. Here in December, we're going to uh, walk through uh, the beginning portions of the book of Luke uh, as we get into the Christmas story. And uh, one of the aspects we're going to see is where the angels came and talked to uh, John the Baptist's parents and kind of told him, uh, told them what he was going to be doing and told them that, that God had a special plan for John the Baptist. But yet also, <coughs> excuse me, of what his plan was for Jesus. The angels came to Mary as well, and we're going to talk about that. And how John the Baptist did not meet Jesus. He didn't necessarily know him, but he knew about him because of what God told his parents and what God told him of what he was going to do. I want us to see first under this, Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist understood that Jesus was and is the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb uh, has a lot to do with what the Old Testament sacrifices were about. Uh, during the uh, Old Testament sacrifices, they would take a spotless lamb. During the time of Passover, they would celebrate this as well. And they would bring uh, a spotless lamb to the temple. And they would sacrifice that lamb. They would shed its blood so that they could put it on the mercy seat. And what that would do, would do would roll over their sin for the, and cover their sin for that year. It didn't take it away. It was a picture of what Jesus was going to do as the Lamb of God, the one who was spotless, the one who uh, lived in this world for 33 years and did not sin. It says in the book of Acts chapter 8 and in verse 32, it says, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Uh, it's helping us to understand out of the book of Isaiah, and maybe I'll, I'll go back here in a second and, and read that entire passage. He's saying he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Jesus was referred to as the Lamb of God, as the one who would come and be sacrificed, laying down his life that all might be saved. Uh, one passage that I like to use if I'm talking to a Jewish man or woman, which doesn't happen very often because they're not always willing to talk, but it's Isaiah 53. And that's where th what he quoted from uh, in Acts there, chapter 8. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, and it says here in verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our 
iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. Uh, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We see here that there is a prophecy here in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah. Now, if we were to ask somebody who is the Messiah that it's talking about there, uh, they would say, we're not sure. He hasn't come yet. But we can clearly see uh, between uh, Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament and what happened to Jesus uh, in the New Testament that Jesus is that Isaiah 53 Messiah. He is that sheep who has come uh, to the slaughter. He is that Lamb of God which is going to take our bruises, which is going to take our chastisement, which is going to put the iniquity of us all upon him and upon his life that we may be healed, that we may have peace with God because of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What is he trying to say here? Well, if we read the verse before that, it says, Knowing that, uh, knowing that yes, verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not bought back, you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, things that will waste away. Something that is corruptible is something that is going to corrode or is going to go bad or is going to eventually waste away to nothing. Uh, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So if you're not redeemed by those corruptible things, then what are you redeemed by? What, how are you brought back to the Father? How are you able to have uh, that relationship with God? He says in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. We see here uh, that this was something... Uh, in verse 20, that indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What was the death of Jesus? Before the world was made, Jesus was already going to go to the cross to die for our sins. Now, how we can put together God's sovereignty and how he knew this was going to happen and his knowledge of what was going to happen in the future, and yet he didn't cause us to sin, it's hard to understand sometimes. But the point is, God's understanding of what was going to happen with us sinning and needing Jesus to go to the cross to die for our sins, he didn't cause it, but he knew it was going to happen. It was foreordained before we were even born, before the world was even founded, but was manifest in verse 20, the end of verse 20, was manifest in these last times for you. Manifest, it was shown forth. When something is made manifest, it's made known. It's made understandable. It's made clear. And so it was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but it was manifest, it was made known to us in these last times. 
Verse 21, through, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is not only the Lamb that goes to take away the sin, uh, goes to die, but to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Secondly, Jesus took away the sin of mankind. As it says here, it takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want you to turn with me, and uh, we're going to come back to John, but I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. There's a couple different passages here I want us to see, because it talks about Jesus and him taking away our sin. How much of our sin has he taken away? For how long has he taken away our sin? There are crucial answers that we need to have. And here in Hebrews chapter 7, it talks about uh, Jesus and him taking away the sin of the world, how he was able to do it so much greater. So the book of Hebrews is going to be close to the end of the Bible. So if you want to go, if you go back to, and you're too far, you'll hit Revelation if, you're too, if you go too far. Uh, it's before Peter, and it's before James. Right before James there, you can see the book of Hebrews. It's a pretty big book, so hopefully you can kind of hit it uh, when you get back there. Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 20. Because this is who John the Baptist saw Jesus to be. Now the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians. And so this was written to people who were saved, but they were Jewish by nature, by birth. And yet, they were trying to understand if they had to go back and live and do the sacrifices and the ordinances and all of those things. And God, through the penman here who wrote the book of Hebrews, is trying to help them understand that Jesus is greater than all of those sacrifices. Jesus is greater than all of those rituals. Jesus is greater than all of those traditions. So in chapter 7, verse 20, it says this. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, now here's a quote from the Old Testament, because this is talking about Melchizedek and then how Jesus is greater. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. Talking about this, this, this priest that he's talking about here, not Melchizedek, but he's talking about uh, Jesus here. We'll get into how we can understand that here as we get down further into the passage. But he says, you are a priest forever. And so I want us to see here that he's talking about not only is Jesus taking away the sin of the world, but Jesus is eternal. Jesus is thrown and his priesthood will last forever. It w there will be no end to Jesus' priesthood. He says here, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant or contract. There's more within that, but that's kind of how we can understand it. Verse 23. Also, there were many priests. In the Old Testament, there were many priests. Because they were prevented 
by death from continuing. And so what he's saying here is Jesus is uh, much greater. There's a, he has a, a, there's a greater covenant that he is ushering in. He says, why? Because those priests in the Old Testament, they could not continue. Why? Because they died. Death kept them from continuing their priesthood. But Jesus' priesthood will last forever. Why? Because he's alive. He's not dead. And so he goes on to say here in verse 23, also there were many priests uh, because they uh, were prevented by death from continuing. Verse 24, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Another attribute of Jesus is that he is unchangeable. Uh, we could also use the word immutable. He does not change. He is the same, as it even says in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus will not change, which is why uh, when people want us to change who Jesus was to uh, reflect what they believe maybe is uh, compassionate or what they believe is uh, not uh, going to uh, make people feel bad, uh, we can't change what Jesus said and, wh and who he is because Jesus himself is unchangeable. Jesus himself is going to not change. He is immutable. It goes on to say here that he is unchangeable. This unchangeable priesthood that he has also talks about his character being unchangeable. Verse 25, therefore, he is also able to save, that, to save to the uttermost. Now, I want us to understand this word uttermost. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but we've heard it back in our uh, churches because it sounds good. Uh, but they would say that uh, Jesus can save from the guttermost to the uttermost, like that he can save the worst of mankind to the greatest of mankind. That's not what this is really saying. What he's trying to say here is that Jesus can save to the uttermost, to the fullest extent in your life, you are saved. He doesn't just save you a little bit. He doesn't just save you for part of your life. He saves you completely. And part of this salvation is sanctification is growing to become more like our identity of who we are in Jesus. And then the final part of that salvation is glorification. When we actually transition from this side of heaven to that side of heaven, we will be glorified and have a new body that is incorruptible, that is not able to be tempted by sin. We will be saved to the uttermost. And if you are saved, you are saved to the uttermost. He says here, uh, in verse 25, uh, that uh, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Meaning he's passing our prayers from us to God the Father. He's making intercession for us to the Father every time we pray. Because that's what a priest does. It go a priest goes between man and God. Jesus is the great high priest forever because he, he, he has not died. He is still alive. He conquered death. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests those in the Old Testament, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For, his, for this, 
he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so what, what it's saying here is that the priests of the Old Testament, they would have to first sacrifice for their own sin before they could sacrifice for the people's sins. But he's saying Jesus doesn't have to do that. Why? Because he's a man without sin. He offered up himself for all sin. He gave of himself for all sin. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 9 should be really close to where you are. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, I know we're reading a lot here, but I want us to understand this because this is really exciting when we think about who Jesus is. Chapter 9, verse 11, it says this, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, talking about Christ, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sancti uh, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator, the intercessor, of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So I was going to read further, but we'll go on to Hebrews chapter 10 for sake of time. And we'll read verse 1. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Those sacrifices that they apply year after year, he's saying they have no effect to make somebody perfect mature, to make somebody have their sins forgiven ultimately is what the point is. They can't perfect somebody. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because if they were able to make amends, if they were able to satisfy God's uh, wrath and his payment, they would have been ceased to offer, right? They wouldn't have had to be offered continually if they were satisfactory. For then they would have, uh, they, they not have ceased to be offered. Verse 2 in the middle there. For the worshiper, worshipers, once purified, would, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Verse 5, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, 
sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' body does not have to be continually sacrificed like the Old Testament. Another verse you could go to is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. I won't go there today. Jesus' sacrifice to take away the sin of the world, it was once for all. For all of our sin and for all mankind. We don't have to continually put Jesus back up on the cross to crucify him year after year like they did in the Old Testament with the Lamb. The Lamb of God took away sin for those who believe in the payment of Christ to pay for their sin. He says in verse 29, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, that he should be uncovered, that uh, he should be manifest, as we used in one of the other verses, that he should be shown to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water, and John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained Upon him. When he saw Jesus, this Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, came down and laid upon Jesus like a dove. And he remained upon him. Verse 33 he says, I did not know him, but he who sent me, talking about God, to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The word baptized simply means to be immersed, to cover, be covered in, or to be plunged into. And so when he was baptizing with water, he was immersing people in water. But Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to immerse us with the Holy Spirit. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is talked about in the New Testament, happens at the time of salvation. That's when you receive the Holy Spirit of God and you are baptized in the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 34, he kind of sums up his testimony here when John the Baptist says this, And I have seen and testified that this, this man, is the Son of God. Who did John the Baptist understand Jesus to be? He understood him to be the Lamb of God. He understood him to be that last sacrifice that needed to be made. 
He understood him to be the one who's going to take away the sin of the world. That we don't need the blood of bulls and goats anymore to remind us of our sin, to uh, help us to remember that there will be one who is coming, but that there one who already came, who is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of all of those who put their belief in him. And in his shed blood, once for all, he died. No longer does he have to be re-crucified. Because he died once for all. The power of his blood took away sin. It dealt with it. It satisfied the God, uh, God's payment that needed to be made. As it says in John 3.16, which we'll get to here in just a little bit, uh, when we get to chapter 3, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not have death, but have everlasting life. How can we have everlasting life? Because Jesus is eternal. His priesthood will last forever. His sacrifice will last forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. He was before the foundation of the world, and his sacrifice was already decided before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh in John 1.14 and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. So who should we understand us ourselves to be? Well, we're not the Christ. We're not Elijah. We're not the prophet. We ought to be humble and, and, and recognize who we are. But we are simply a voice. What are we a voice about? This is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, which takes the sin away the sin of the world. And we should go to the community, and maybe not yell at them like I'm going to do here, but and say, "Behold, look, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world." We point him to Jesus, just as John the Baptist was saying, I'm going to now decrease my ministry because that is not what I am to have happen here. I'm not to be in the forefront anymore, but I am to point people to Jesus, point people to the one who actually can take away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the blood. That was shed once for all, for all mankind, for all sin, for all time. Father, we thank you that you save to the uttermost. You save us completely. There's not some sins you've saved us from and some sins you haven't saved us from. There's not some uh, temptations that you've uh, given us the power to overcome and some that you haven't, but you've saved us to the uttermost completely. Thank you, Lord, for that.
We don't have to wonder. We don't have to hope. We don't have to wish. But Father, we can know for sure that we are safe from now through eternity. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to always stay humble no matter how long we've been saved, no matter how long here in the future we have our salvation before we go to be with you in heaven. Father, I pray that you would help us to stay humble so that we can have your grace upon our lives and not have your resistance as you resist the proud. Father, help us to continually point people to Jesus in how we live our lives, but also in what we say. And Father, how we can point them to you for their salvation as well. We thank you for what you're going to do with us. We thank you for this time that we have, uh, the holiday season. Pray that you would be profitable and that you would give us the wisdom to know how to reach out to folks that they might also receive that gift that is the greatest gift that anybody could receive, eternal salvation because of the blood of Christ. Thank you for what you're going to do with the rest of the day we have. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so glad you came to be with us this morning, and uh, we look forward to the next.